Hello and welcome back to the Panty Personals. Now first out in this new season I was with the very thoughtful and talented Danny Larkin who is very much a rising star on the Irish music scene but today my two guests are brothers who have already soared high and mopped up awards, applause, acclaim and gained legions of followers. It's Brian and Dieran McGlynn otherwise known to you and me as Ye Vagabonds whose close harmonies and acoustic instrumentation marrying trad, folk and Appalachian blues has won them audiences across the world. They're Carlo men, but found their voice together as a band in Dublin, in places like the Cobblestone Pub, which of course is under threat today, and I'm sure we'll talk about that a bit later. But their mother's homeland, Arnmore Island in Donegal, has also shaped them, their songs, their sound, and their story. Brian and Dermot, welcome. Lovely to have you. Thanks a million. Great um, to be here. First of all, I should say that earlier this year, um, we had um, the lovely all-round Good Egg and Polymath um, Miles O'Reilly in. And he has a sort of a, well, he's sort of played a major role, hasn't he, in the huge Vagabond story. Yeah, Yeah, Miles is E Vagabond's big brother. um, In like, he just found us at a pivotal point when Mm. we were kind of, we weren't, taking ourselves too serious. I don't like to say taking seriously, but like we weren't going at it full belt, yeah, you know? Yeah, really putting ourselves out there. No. We weren't putting ourselves out there too much. We, in a way, we weren't taking ourselves seriously. We had a, like a, a joke band name that we had had since we were teenagers. What was the still, joke band The brand name? new switcheroo we used to be called when we were younger, yeah. I'm glad you changed it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, we had to. Well, actually, that was the, the kind of incentive was we met Miles and then... We played at the Arbutus area in Body and Soul that Miles runs. So this friend of ours, Stefano, said, Miles, did you get the lads up to play a song? We played a song. And then after that, Miles asked if we wanted him to make a video of us. Mm. And then he just... We did two videos, I think, in a day in Walsh's and in our front room in Stony Butter. And then that was when we had to decide, you know, make up a new band name and then... One of the videos did really well. Yeah. So if it weren't for Miles, we wouldn't really be a band, I'd say. Like, And we've had a lot of adventures with Miles since then. We've yeah. done a lot of videos with him. Yeah. We've collaborated closely on things with him and he's a real close friend. Yeah. yeah. You mentioned Walsh's, which is Walsh's pub in Stony Bath. That's right. Yeah. Brian, before that point, you were just kind of doing the sessions in Walsh's or the Cobblestone and it was just fun. Well, when we were younger, we used to play all over Carlo and mm. places around the Midlands. We were just playing gigs in pubs, playing whatever songs, you know, playing any kind of music. Could be Rolling Stones covers or anything. Um, so we were still doing those gigs and we were, before we met Miles, we had maybe, we had met a, a crowd of musicians in Dublin that wrote their own songs and were more interested in, in doing that as well. So yeah. we kind of were starting to develop maybe more in writing our own material. And we found people that we felt like we belonged with. Maybe yeah. and that kind of changed things for us too. We hadn't really had a scene our age in Carlo that we kind of bonded with in such a, a big way, you know. And then with Miles, Dermot, like, you know, I want to talk to you about the All Boats Rise project you did. Tell me how you got to there, because first of all, you'd done a similar project um, where you were you played sort of on islands. Uh, so. And that was Miles' idea. I suppose Miles has kind of been like the 
eyes of the band. He does the yeah. visual thing and in that way has presented us to the world and made us accessible to like, you know, mm. we we were just singing in the corner of a pub effectively yeah. and in a few other places before that. And then Miles made these videos, people saw them and then um, Miles had wanted to do kind of a tour of the islands with an artist for years and mm. then he was kind of like you guys are the, are the right people for this mm. because of the connection with the islands and Miles not only filmed those gigs but also he stepped into this other role that Miles has since continued to do for us where he like he dressed the stages fixed up the lights and aesthetically just kind of helped create the whole experience yeah. you know I courted the weaker for many a long day and I slighted all others that came in my way And well she's rewarded me to the last day For she's gone to be wed to another Another She's gone to be wed to another well, that was the thing about the island tour that was kind of so transformative for us was that it felt like we learned to tour all over again because yeah. we were playing in like a community hall on Inishman with a basketball hoop on the stage. You know what I mean? Yeah, it was, yeah. You had to kind of learn to transform a space into yeah. a venue so that people would walk in and not just feel like they were walking into their local hall, mm. that it felt a bit different. And Miles is amazing at that. Uh, yeah. He did this amazing improv job where he took the lights off a snooker table that was in the corner of this community hall, put them up on the stage. It turned out that the the plug wasn't working, so he took the fuse out of a plug in, in the kettle in the same hall, fixed it up, plugged in the lights. They looked amazing. After that, we went and bought a set of snooker table <laughs> lights that we brought around all the rest of those gigs with us. And it just was one of those things that no one else would have thought of. And yeah, no. yeah. He's amazing. And how many islands did you do? Uh, six or six seven. Six or seven of them, maybe, yeah. yeah. And how long was the period of time? It was a couple of months, yeah. Mm. Maybe from June to like end of July, mid-August kind of time. Yeah. 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 And so after that, the idea then came about to do an inland version of that and being from Carlo, um, that probably made sense too. Because I have to say, looking at the little clips and everything, it seems like, I don't know, almost impossibly idyllic. And to do it during the pandemic when people were trying to find a way to perform, to be hopping on a barge, and which I have to say, um, when we were kids, every two years we had a family holiday and it was down the Shannon oh, on a barge. No, no, my no. mother's old friend owned a barge no so, way. Oh, so i have like great memories of you know my me and my six brothers and sisters my parents the cat yeah. the cat we <laughs> the, the, cat, cat the, barge, the yeah. dog you know some neighbors kids all piled onto these bar barge. did the cat have its own life vest no and, and like it's this sounds so nuts like taking the dog on the barge is not such a big you know people do that <laughs> yeah. seems yeah. reasonable and Taking sometimes have life jackets cat. for them and the cat in lucky forest park the cat legged it you know one day and was gone for two days but came back and got back on the boat <laughs> and we you know went home with the cat you know who knows what the cat got up to on that last exactly. weekend <laughs> such a nutty idea and my dad's a fucking vet and i've been <laughs> to him and says you're 
Remember you? We took the cat on a boat. <laughs> Cats don't traditionally. Well, they don't traditionally like water, do they? Cats? Or or leaving home or <laughs> any of it. Like the whole thing was such nuts. Like, anyway, so I reading about your your you know inland watery barge tour. Yeah. Like um, it was just really speaking to me. So um, great. How did it work on a practical level? Each gig and it was like I guess the the process took a lot longer than. Uh, just a month on the on the boat yeah but um it was something we thought about it a couple of years ago and then i guess because of the pandemic we decided that maybe it would be a good time to do it mm. so um we started i think our we we basically went on the grand canal the barrow and then up the royal canal and mm. um, so the grand canal and the barrow were on the same boat yeah and we were told by the people who owned the boat that we shouldn't go down the barrow first because the barrow is a bit trickier. Okay. There's like, it's, you know, there's currents and stuff. So we went up the Grand Canal. You were doing your own. Uh, oh, yeah. We had yeah, to drive. Um, that's the not the right yet. word. Learn, but. Yeah, we had to learn to drive it. All right. Yeah. So we had friends with us the first. Rosie and Dave were with us the first yeah. week. And that was amazing. They they live on a boat and they okay. know how to move barges around. And they showed us the ropes, uh, literally, I suppose. But um, we brought it over to Banagher and then they left. And then it was us out on our own. But Miles jumped on at that yeah, point yeah. as well. So then it became we became this crew of three. It was kind of the best thing we've ever done, it's I'd say. Easily. It was so like everything you've said, you know, about it being impossibly idyllic. It, it, we, even though we had put all this effort into planning, you know, but there's always things you can't plan mm. for, like the weather, for example, yeah. which was perfect. Yeah. It was amazing. The crowds, you don't know what the crowds are going to be like. They were amazing everywhere. And like we had kind of, we put out uh, like 30 free tickets on Eventbrite per gig I think the capacity for gigs outdoors at the time was like 75 or 100. 100 outdoors or something. And around 100 people turned up just kind of, you know, word of mouth and stuff every night. So we kind of tried to like keep it to a minimum and it was just perfect every time. And like, I think we had to cancel one gig. Because of the rain. Because of the rain. Otherwise. So you had to sort of advertise these gigs in advance in all these different, you know, towns and villages, whatever. And then you're, you're pulling up, you know, to the pure side or, or whatever and you're like just sitting up on the verge in a sense yeah yeah it feels so, a little bit like the circus is town yeah. kind of thing yeah yeah so in some places we would get there we'd try get there early enough in the day to set up and miles would do his thing he would kind of like dress the area and then we so usually we would be set up well in time before people got there sometimes we would be on the barge like on the yeah. roof or on the back, or sometimes we just play on the bank or whatever, whatever mm. kind of worked. We had to, you have to improvise everywhere yeah. you go. And so each one is different. Everything was kind of different. Every single gig was completely different. And they were all really own, unique in their own and, way. And, and, like, they were all amazing. Well, the first, mm. probably the first gig, the first gig that we put on, on the barge was in Belmount. Belmount Lock. Yeah. yeah. And there's an overhanging galvanized like tin roof that used to be the shelter for when the Guinness barges would pull up. Yeah. But it's on the opposite bank. See, the bank that, the the grassy bank that the audience were going to be able to sit on is on the opposite bank. So we pulled up 
we set up the tent on the opposite bank and then we Which had we to were re- doing it was literally just the three yeah we were our own yeah, crew yeah. yeah and then we had to reverse the barge and it was a really tricky weirdly tricky <laughs> yeah. maneuver we had done plenty of reversing but the current whatever it was about the water level there it was a, quite a difficult thing to reverse the barge in under this roof this yeah. shelter and then set up stage and then the audience were arriving and then play and it was the first one so there was always teething problems it's just yeah. it's not straightforward at not all. at all straightforward <laughs> it's, it's a gig where like if something falls off the stage it, you might never see it again <laughs> yeah. you know it's like yeah the last one we ended up arriving about an hour and a half late there was a we got delayed by about five days at the end of the trip and we had to wait for water levels to rise and then mm. it was really low going through Mullingar so we it was Bloody coming into Mullingar. the last gig. I know. Always Mullingar. <laughs> but uh, we came through the last stretch. It was incredibly slow and weedy. We were arriving there at eight o'clock, which is when the gig was supposed to start. Luckily that day, the restrictions lifted a bit. There was about 300 people sitting on the bank in Coolnahay Harbour. And we arrived in on the boat and we were thinking, right, we have to kind of make a, a scene of this because we know everybody's going to see us arriving in. We had the the PA speakers with us, which are these like battery powered, giant battery powered speakers. And you can hook up to them via Bluetooth with your phone. So the first thing that Dermot had on his phone was Cormac Begley playing O'Neill's March, like, you know, this kind of warlike, <laughs> deep bassy concertina things. So we stuck it up on the roof and like came into Coolnahay Harbour with Cormac Begley blaring out of a speaker and then had to park the barge in front of everyone and do the whole thing. It was kind of intense, but kind of brilliant as well, because, you know, the whole thing became performance. Like Very it was, theatrical in the end. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it was amazing crack. She dances as well as anyone. She wouldn't go to bed unless she had her shimmy on. When she had it on, she'd go to bed with anyone. Ring a ding a dum and a ring a ding a daddy oh. Ring a ding a dum and no act for the daddy oh. She had lovers by the score every Tom and Dick and Harry. She heard her night and day and still she wouldn't marry. Till she fell in love with the fellow with the summer and tried to run away. She hit him with the hammer with the ring. Um. <laughs> Yeah, you just and, and loads of mad things, loads of mad things happened on that trip as well that Miles managed to capture like all of and that's his, his genius. You know, he'll always catch it. He'll always catch the, the funny stuff and the really sweet stuff. We had an, an owl rescue that uh, we picked up a, a, a friend of Breen's, uh, the father of a friend of Breen's. Um, Carlo. from Carlo yeah. we picked him up by chance along the way and he said that there was a bird caught in a wire down the way you say you picked him up by chance. He was like hanging out on the riverbank and the yeah. barge goes by and exactly. you go, I know you. And yeah. that's we exactly up, what happened. We were coming yeah. up through a lock and uh, I spotted him and he went over to Miles. Miles was like filming us. And he, uh, he went over to Miles to say, to ask if we could maybe pull down this bird that he saw that was caught in a tree. And then I spot him. I'm sure he just jumped on with us. And then, and then he ended up performing the rescue and 
taking this poor, this poor uh, long-eared, no, brown baby. owl, sorry, a brown yeah. owl. Yeah, was it a long-eared owl? Baby long-eared owl. Baby yeah. long-eared owl down from this fishing wire that it was caught in. We managed to get the owl aboard. It was still alive, untangled all of the wire and wrapped it up in a towel and put it safely inside. It was a lot of drama. Like, a lot of drama, We had to yeah. pull a couple out from under <laughs> under the bridge in Carlo that uh, we were on the on the way back to Carlo, on the way back to Carlo Town. We got a call off the lock keeper and I rang him anyway to check in and he said, I need you in Carlo as quickly as you can. And uh, there was a couple that got stuck under, they went under the wrong arch of the bridge, basically. There's only and one they, arch that's passable, you know? Yeah. So. And so they got stuck in a different barge. So we ended up having to pull them out. But it's like, it's a really intense thing to do. You're going against the current and then you have to turn, get the rope off the lock keeper while we're turning, tie it onto our boat and then drive full throttle towards a weir. <laughs> which is like just yeah there's just this over, you shelf know. that you could go over the edge yeah. of and you need to drive really fast at it <laughs> it's like this whole other world it's on the water there it's getting you down to Carlo yeah. ASAP you know stat it's definitely like there's a subculture and yeah. there there is definitely a subculture in Ireland of people on that live on barges and that mm. kind of deal with the canals as I'm sure you know from your yeah. childhood but it is really tightly knit and yeah. so everywhere that we went by the time we were a couple of weeks in people knew us by the time we got there and you know and you were also the traveling you know musicians setting up your gigs you must have been the talk at the barrow they were (laughs) (laughs) i heard i did hear some some old men talking about us in a shop somewhere down on i don't know where we were it was in the middle of nowhere like it's amazing the way word travel you wouldn't know how word gets passed around on the barrow we we met there's a man (laughs) who lives in the lock house at lachlan bridge we've known him for years He's known affectionately as Bobby the Hippie in Carlo. And he he told us that he used to be friends with this heron that used to live with him. <laughs> when you'd pass by most of the weirs, you'd often see a heron standing on a weir. He told us that he once witnessed the conference of the herons um. that they meet and they hold a council uh, Bobby's a very wise yeah, man We have no reason to doubt that Bobby witnessed a council among the herons to decide which weir each heron would be allotted to He told us and it, as far as I'm concerned it's the truth Well I'm going so to buy it I'm, I'm on board The communication networks along the barrel <laughs> um, Well this seems like a very opportune moment um, to have a song Um uh, tell us what the, the song you're about to do is. It's a song that um, it's called The Pride of the Barrow. And we went looking for songs that were to do with the canals and barge life for this project. And there's very few of them recorded. But there was a documentary that I found that was made by RTE back in the 70s that included recordings of this fella talking. He was telling stories about his life, how he had spent his life working on boats, on the Guinness boats. And so was his father and his father before him. And it sounded to me like he was the one that was singing a few songs in this documentary, but he wasn't named and he wasn't credited. So there was a fragment of a song. I wrote a couple of more verses to it. And then we ended up by chance, one of the lock keepers in Carlo, uh, I got chatting to him and he mentioned a story about his dad. He said his dad used to work on the boats and I recognized the story from this documentary. I said, your dad, he hardly sings a song called The Pride of the Barrow, does he? Or like with a fine pair of horses going down to Carlow. He said, yeah. He said, that's my, that, yeah, that was my dad's song. I said, and it turns out he's still alive. He, Jim Gill is his name. He's 90 years old. 
and so he's one of the one of the old Guinness bargemen. So that's where this song kind of came from. But uh, we'll visit him soon. It's yeah. a very Irish story, that too, yeah. isn't it? Absolutely. Everybody knows everybody. Um, all right, let's hear the song. Right. Gorgeous. Um, I have a few thoughts about that song. The first of all is kudos on I presume not changing the pronouns, but then you tell me that it was a guy who sang it anyway originally, and he mm. sang it with with male pronouns. Yeah, yeah, that is interesting to me because most singers are so obsessed and they 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 always you know they they're so freaked out and they change the pronouns yeah. and i was thinking you're perfectly happy to sing a song where you murder somebody in it and you don't get yeah. freaked out <laughs> but, but you can't you, you sing something from the perspective of a woman for a second um th- so that's interesting to me though because um you heard it being sung by a guy from the perspective of a woman mm-hmm. 
It's, yeah, it's kind of I think, common in traditional songs. I think songs. that's a common thing. And yeah. I, I, we've never, we've, I think we've always kind of enjoyed the fact that you can do that. There's yeah. like permission to do that yeah. in that whole sphere of to, to just like, like I sing uh, a song that begins, I am a poor girl. Yeah. You know, and, and you can. And there's, it's like, it's a longstanding part of the tradition. And it's yeah. there is something a bit fluid about it. And that's like totally cool yeah sometimes like, we do change pronouns of songs or we add verses that have different just for the crack we've like done well yeah there's there's the, a song called hairs on the mountain where it's like if all the young men were hairs on the mountain all the young girls would take guns and go hunting and we've changed <laughs> we've changed in some of the verses we've mixed it up so that in in one of the verses we'll sing all the young men then all the young men and then another one where it's all the young girls and all the young girls just for the crack because yeah. you can and if all the young maidens were green rushes growing for the Because with folk songs you can just, you know Yeah, they're everybody. Well I like that because um in a way a folk song it's a bit like you know, it's a story and you're just, you know, telling the story. I suppose um, it's it's the thing with folk songs and with old songs is that like it's kind of hard to say it. there is an original thing that yeah. there, it's very hard to trace things back to one source so it means that there's a lot of freedom to do whatever you want yeah. with them in that way yeah you know there's no copyright <laughs> yes yeah. but they're also kind of oral histories yeah. in a way that a regular pop song isn't do you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, every time you retell the story whether you intend to embellish it or not because mm. you're well, especially if it's in the oral tradition it may not have been written down. And so it's, you're depending on the reliability of your own memory. Yeah. And memory is unreliable. Yeah. So you're going to misremember things and the way that you misremember things are going to be coloured by your experience. Yeah. So if you have leanings towards, I don't know, violence or leanings mm. towards gender fluidity or whatever it is you want to yeah. bring to the story, the things that you prioritize are going to come through they're going to be the things that yeah. you emphasize maybe it'll just be in the way that you ornament that verse the way you sing it yeah but whether you like it or not yeah you definitely you'll, you'll end up affecting things i think subconsciously yeah. or consciously yeah and yeah. you know imitation in traditional singing is actually an act of yeah it's a, yeah. an act of creation you know yeah. um well i have to say that there's a part of me that i couldn't stop sniggering because there's somehow um the 40 ton load <laughs> 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 <He's only> like, anyway, that's another perspective uh, yeah, that I'll, I'll, that'll be in the back of my mind. Let us quickly rush through that and bring it back to your grandfather. <laughs> <laughs> because Brian, you do have this lovely story. Um, uh, what age you now, Rian? Uh Nearly 28. 28. So yeah. when you were 16, doing your transition year, mm-hmm. you um, did your placement in the um, traditional music archive. Yeah. And, and so tell the lovely story about discovering um, recordings of your granddad. Yeah, it was about, I was actually with Grace Toland, who I think you yeah. uh, interviewed a couple of years did, ago. Yeah. I, we were with Grace a couple of days ago and mm-hmm. talking about this. Um, I was in, yeah, for a week. And one day I was sent into a room to sort through leaflets into different boxes. A really important job, of course. <laughs> and I was sorting away and there was a woman in the room that was using it as an office. 
I knew she was finishing work that her husband had done for his uh, life as a, a collector of old music. So we got chatting and she kind of was asking me questions about my interest in music and why I was there and if there was music in my family. And anyway, I told her there was our mom sings a few songs, our dad sings a few songs, the whole family sing, you know, whenever they get the chance. And she said, OK, so did your grandparents sing? Where did they get this? You know, where did your parents get the songs from? And so I said, well, my granddad had a few. Yeah, he sung a few songs. Yeah, I think he was a bit of a singer. And this woman, Lisa. But now you had never heard your grandpa. No, I'd never met him. He, he yeah. died back in the 80s. But mm. um, so I'd never heard him. And uh, she said, what's your granddad's name? I said, ah, he, look, he wasn't well known. Like, but he was known locally as Barney Bag. And she said, that's hardly Barney Bag Gallagher from Iron Moor. And I said, yeah, that's my granddad. Yeah. I said, I, I never knew him, but yeah. And she said, I recorded him back in the 70s with Hugh. So I said, well, that's amazing. I've never heard him singing at all. I've never heard recordings of him. I'd love to hear them sometime. And she said, well, they're all here. We can go listen to them right now. Let's go find them. And we kind of excitedly ran upstairs and found the CDs that they were on. And then I was given a set of headphones and a computer and stuck on this thing. And there was five recordings of my of my granddad singing and a few recordings of our great grandmother, his mother. The recordings were amazingly alive. You could hear at one point somebody walked into the room probably the front door of the house and yeah. they start saying like huh? and and then you hear somebody saying like shh and then the kettle <laughs> yeah. going on and like it's it's an amazingly real thing I mean that was a that was a crazy moment it was kind of transformative for me because I I was singing whatever songs back then you know David Bowie and like Johnny Cash songs mm. out of songbooks I hadn't really been that interested in traditional singing up to that point I learned a few songs but I didn't really feel like they belonged to me maybe I didn't feel like I had a place to sing those songs but it it definitely maybe made me feel like maybe those songs did belong to me maybe mm. I, I you know had a place to sing those songs and then the more I thought about it and looked into it over the past few years, I guess, the more that I realized that a lot of songs are traditional songs that people wouldn't even realize, you know? Yeah. So just somebody's party piece. Mm. You never really question. But um, yeah. And I wonder as well, like, we didn't know that there were recordings of our grandfather there in the, the archive. We kind of knew he was a singer. He had a few songs, but like how many people had you know their grandparents or like grand uncles or aunts or whatever how many of them 
were like singing songs that would yeah. have been now if you listen to them you'd say they were traditional songs but at the time they were just songs that people yeah. sang so like it, those songs therefore really I mean traditional songs they, they can belong to anyone yeah. you don't even have to you don't have to have a granddad who sang songs or a granny who Definitely sang trad not. songs either yeah. it's just no. you can just feel like you have a sense of connection to them for whatever reason you know mm. I mean, it's not like you grew up in a family that was like one of these steeped in trad all performers, you know, musicians. It was a more of a casual. You, you, all my granddad, I think, sang a few songs. Yeah, totally. Uh, your ma, our, you know. Like our dad, our, when family get togethers, our dad would sing like Leonard Cohen, Cat Stevens, Simon and Garfunkel. Like, and there were probably, there were songs that our family sang that were like, traditional but they were in the middle of all those other songs you'd play yeah. them with an acoustic guitar yeah. so like there's there's uh there's songs that we sang together we didn't know were traditional we just they were our f- sort of family songs yeah i think every family whether they're even musical or not has some songs that totally know ones if you drinks or you're on a long car drive or whatever that they, yeah totally yeah. yeah but no we're definitely not one of those families that are like you know, Shan knows through I'm really and through. glad you brought that up because that's it. I think it's a maybe it's something that people uh, like to imagine about us at this stage. That story maybe gets told, but it's uh, yeah. I mean, we grew up listening to like Led Zeppelin and Thin Lizzy. Yeah, first in a way. Yeah, there was a, a route that we followed, a musical interest that took us to getting really interested in traditional music yeah. and spending. I mean, it's time not with like it. you know you were two years old and your parents are shoving a fiddle into your hands or anything. No. Not at all. No, like the I mean, the I, girls all played like trad instruments, but they our parents didn't play trad tunes. Mm-hmm. Um, they had an interest they They were really interested they liked it yeah but they were one of their friends like they were into like amateur theatre and stuff yeah theatre but they're they're kind of people they encouraged anything that was creative they loved things that were like community based so like our dad was involved in the GAA even though he didn't really play a whole lot you know he was involved in the club because it was a club and it was a local thing yeah that is small town stuff in totally you're just involved in everything and one of their friends uh, Dave Sheridan when I was like eight or something, asked my mom if I wanted to learn the fiddle. And there was a fiddle lying around somewhere that my sister had had when she was younger. So um, I ended up learning when I was that age, probably from Dave. But, but, but I know. didn't learn any trad tune. Like I started playing tunes only a few years ago, really, and singing traditional songs like when we were in our late, late teens. Late teens. Yeah. Early 20s, sorry. Early 20s. Um, And like, yeah, like, kind of followed a path through loads mm. of other music to get there and in a way it does feel like coming back home but there's yeah. this there is this idea people have about like uh, I'm doing the rabbit ears quotey thing here for people <laughs> who aren't looking at us but like authenticity what I think authenticity is is a feeling people have inside themselves yeah. when they see or hear something that you know feels like it's true to the old whatever or the real you know like we became obsessed with the music we were into but mm. I don't know. yeah i mean if you look at the the bare bones of your story you know what would jump out you know from a sort of trad oh they were bound to is the fact that your mother's from Aaron Moore and you know and you spent summers there and all but it, when you were a kid and you're going to the island in the summer 
were you just being kids whoops poking a stick in a rock boot or whatever absolutely like yeah. it wasn't like you were being taken to the trad session every night and there you know, isn't no. there isn't really that at the, on iron more anyway as such or there wasn't when we were kids like there there are lots of pubs and there's lots of there's loads of singing and there are great singers there and there's a pipe band and there's there's music all right but there isn't like a regular trad it isn't that kind of a place our really, uncle used anyway. to play in a pub and you know he was like the local uh, one man band mm. had a like drum machine and stuff. And it would have been kind of country <laughs> like, music yeah, and, yeah, and that yeah. kind of stuff. Yeah. And, yeah, but no, we were up there playing games. We were, it was in a mat, like, yeah. you know, it was Lord of the Rings land for me when yeah. I was a kid, you know. All the cousins together, you know, it was kind of that. How big is the thing. island? I mean, how many people are on it's it? About 400. Oh, um, so yeah, it's populated big. enough. Back then, like when we were kids, there was over a thousand people living there all the time. Um, so the population has dropped quite significantly in the past kind of 15 years, 20 years. Because of fishing and stuff uh, getting kind of hit. Yeah. Although the population is dropping, but your family is adding to it because yeah. your parents <laughs> and sister have yeah. gone have back moved to back. There. Yeah, right. and then yeah. Fiona has three. Fiona and Jesse have three little girls there now as well. So yeah. it's keeping. Yeah, I mean, every time that happens, I mean, it keeps the primary schools going and that kind of stuff. Yeah, it was very exciting yeah. for the island when our our youngest niece was born because she right. was the first. She was the first kid to be born on the island in a couple of years, mm. you know, so it was it was a big deal. But uh, yeah, it, it really feels like home up there now. Like yeah. our, our mom and dad left Carlo after we left, I suppose. We're the youngest. Um, and, and, so, and so when did your parents move back there? It was about four or five years ago. So like now um, Christmas is coming up. Will that be Christmas on an island? Yeah, yeah, yeah it's yeah. become the hub now. We don't have a place in Carlo anymore. So like we don't visit Carlo as much now. No. Yeah, Iron the first Moore's time we were in Carlo in years was on the boat. So yeah, yeah, we'd we'd be up to up to the island a lot. Like we'd be kind of, and I I spent a few months there last year uh, during the second lockdown. And yeah, it's been it's definitely it feels like home. We do we do mm. feel like rooted in the place a, a wee bit. You know, it's nice. And because of the family connection, you're not considered blow-ins, is it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's a yeah. there's a book on the history of the island, sort of that's called Aaron Moore Links, that our great grandmother was the primary source for our granddad sat down and wrote down her recollection and she was one of these people who had like you know the 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 memory you know the art of tracing and all this she was she was the memory on the island and she could trace family trees back several generations and knew who married who and all this stuff so she became the source of this there's a whole book that is basically her memory of the area and so we can see our family and stories about our family and even little details like there's a story her name was Biddy uh, Naley yeah Biddy Naley Naley O'Gallagher so she was she was born 1888 Um, she died in the 80s like she was she lived till she was 97 Mm. Uh, outlived her son uh, her only son she was kind of had an incredible and brutal life in a way but like she uh, was an amazing woman just like a a really powerful uh, matriarch of the family and lived with her mom. Um, and in, in that house for her whole life. You know? There's a really beautiful and I think unique recitation as well recorded of her in that same Hugh Shields collection that our granddad was in. So we got to hear, we can hear her voice now. We could hear his mm. voice. Oh, we're left in it. Um, she's reciting a kind of a, a rare local, like religious recitation in like a very pure dialect. But um, yeah, so we know things about because of her memory and because of that that book and those recollections, we know things about our family going back 
I don't know, six generations or something. Yes, or yes. There's a on the island. There was a kind of a in the past few years, I guess, when we got into interested in traditional songs and kind of looking for them wherever we were. We then realized that a couple of old family friends uh, were really amazing singers and had really important songs that nobody else had and songs that weren't really recorded or paid attention to. And they never regarded themselves as traditional singers. Mm. And that's quite common yeah. um, for people not to think of themselves as traditional singers. They just sang songs. And uh, it turned out that there were two people um, who sadly passed away in the past couple of years. But um, Andrew and Madge both had spent a lot of time with this singer called Rosha Rua on Iron Moor when they were kids. I'm going to sing a song now. This is a song I got from Rosha Rua when she was, when I was 15 years of age. I learned this song and it's, uh, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's, uh, My dear mother stood on the Queen's town docks with a handkerchief up to her and as the big ship sailed away with the tide it was there that she started to cry and Rosha would have been of the same generation as our great grandmother um, and she had uh, an amazing repertoire of old songs and singing and yeah she was recorded a bit by the Folklore Commission and RTE mm. back in the 50s but they went looking for her local Irish language old old songs and they didn't bother recording a bunch of her other songs because they thought oh maybe that one's a bit modern that doesn't sound traditional but uh, Madge and Andrew had loads of those songs mm. and so we we've kind of gotten to learn a bunch of those through them and we became really close to Andrew in recent years then. So it kind of gave us a little, a couple of ways in. And identity is a funny thing in, in those yeah. places. If people don't identify as a singer, they don't feel like they can say that they're a traditional singer. Um, conf their confidence might be low yeah. or whatever. They they won't tell anyone. Well, I think people feel they have to earn singer or it has to be done professionally or something rather than... Mm. I mean, you said in the recording of your grandmother, Jim, what you said was... Uh, Local religious recitation. I think this so. This is making it sound very Wicker Man. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I've yeah. never seen Wicker Man, actually. People keep on saying that there's... there's <laughs> we a, should probably watch that. We should probably we watch should, it. We're probably, an important we're probably reference. Like, yeah, people keep <laughs> Not on the modern remake of it. No, 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 the old one. The original one. Because I think the original one has a song in it that has the same melody as Willie Winsbury. So people used All to right. keep on hearing us <laughs> and being like, have you seen the Wicker Man? Says bring me Willie Winsbury. Or hang it, he shall be. But when he came, the king before he was clad all in red silk. But no, I get it. Spooky Island. Yeah, uh, Spooky Island. Religious. Religious <laughs> stuff. Cut yeah. off from the mainland. Terrible things happen. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I don't know that Sounds our grandmother. Right. I don't know that our great grandmother ever got up to that kind of thing. To be honest. Um, <laughs> yeah. No, it's like it has a lovely word in it though. That recitation. I think it's sulke. Sulke yeah, for yeah. miracle. The word for miracle. <laughs> Spanish and Wakog, 
Aber dann schwelte der Wirsche, dann ich because it's about the seven miracles like folk folk religion folk religion often has I don't know they could have pagan origins but they'll often have these things they're not from the kind of Catholic you know faith so there's this story of like the seven miracles of the Virgin Mary and like it's just it's a a folk poem there's some real beautiful stuff in some of these old poems because they were just written by people and often, like people who didn't actually write, maybe or, you know, yeah. so they were oral. Yeah, yeah. or they, yeah, exactly composed rather, maybe by by people who who knew stories that were folk stories, and often kind of carry a different message than the maybe the mainstream church message. Yes, and especially ones around the Virgin Mary often have something to do with you know, like something. Um, a bit different just it's yes. a feminine thing fertility you know it's a, yeah and all that stuff. But they're not even always fertility sometimes they're just like a very female kind of protective power as well it would be only pretty recently that there'd be like a lot of men around all year yeah. round on iron Moor, you know what i mean right, yeah. like forever people have just been emigrating seasonally mm. or for years so yeah it was it was often the way that it would just be like women and children on iron Moor, mm. you know for until a certain time of the year would come around like christmas yeah. or something or whatever and all the husbands have come home. So therefore women yeah. would have been doing all of the work and would have been like really strong yeah. as yeah. well. They would have been doing like yeah. all of the farm or the, like our, that same great grandmother would have rode to the mainland and back herself. Like every day. Well into yeah. her like yeah. old age, you know. Well, women in the West, they're fierce. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And the Northwest yeah. as well, yeah. even yeah. maybe. Uh, yeah. Um, You were mentioned the songs that you'd learned, like songs that you're doing or some of them yeah, yeah some of them example. well there's one i'm a rover is one that our mom sings that we didn't really cop as being a traditional song for years because it was just a family activity <laughs> um <laughs> more or less but um there's a couple of songs there's one called no one to welcome me home mm-hmm. that i yeah i was used to hearing andrew singing maybe because you'd be hearing you'd hear people singing them with a guitar in a pub and they'd be backing it like a country song yeah Country music is kind of like a first cousin of traditional music. And so, yeah, a lot of these songs maybe just sounded like country songs until Mm. you kind of listen a bit harder or you find out where they came from. Yeah. Yeah. Well, actually, now this might be a good time then to hear um, I'm a Rover. Yeah, for Um, sure. Absolutely. Yeah. um, So, yeah, let's hear it. Great. Seldom sober, 
I'm a rover of high degree It's when I'm drinking I'm always thinking How to gain my love's company She raised her head then from off her pillow She raised the blanket from off her breast And through her window she whispered softly Who is disturbing me from my night's rest I'm a rover, seldom sober I'm a rover of high degree It's when I'm drinking I'm always thinking How to gain my love's company Get up, get up now, it's your true lover Get up, get up now and let me in For I am weary of my long journey And I am wet right into the skin I'm a rover, seldom sober I'm a rover of high degree It's when I'm drinking I'm always thinking How to gain my love's company She raised her head then from off her pillow She raised the set and she let him in And they were locked in each other's arms Until the long night was past and gone I'm a rover, seldom sober I'm a rover of high degree It's when I'm drinking I'm always thinking How to gain my love's company I'm a rover, seldom sober I'm a rover of high degree It's when I'm drinking I'm always thinking How to gain my love's company I'm a rover, seldom sober I'm a rover of high degree It's when I'm drinking I'm always thinking How to gain my love's company Gorgeous. Beautiful. <laughs> Thanks. Um, I want to, after all that talk about um, Aaron Moore and uh, Inland Riverways, um, I want to talk to something uh, closer to where we are here. Because you do have this association with the cobblestone, and um, uh, which uh, people are probably aware um, is sort of under threat at the moment. Um, for people who might be listening from wherever. Cobblestone is a very well-known pub in a particular part of Dublin city centre, um, which is very well known for um, the sessions and traditional music and well, music in general. And it's uh, sort of uh, in danger from development at the moment. And it's been interesting to watch because um, I think during the pandemic, maybe especially people really kind of took stock of the city and what is not working or what is maybe seen to be going wrong with it. And maybe also two things that are right with it. And one of the you know, things that has been sort of bubbling up over the last couple of years, and especially during the pandemic, about the city is the loss of our cultural spaces. And when the cobblestone was threatened by development recently, it really seemed to catch the wave of that fear or that concern. And so there's been this great sort of very um, enthusiastically supported campaign to save the cobblestone from from development. So tell me, first of all, um, you guys, you know, came to Dublin separately, right? And then it's here in Dublin rather than on Ironmore or in Carlow that you both 
sort of started to find music together. Well, yeah. we had been playing yeah. together for a little while before we came up to Dublin. But even before we came up to Dublin, we were always really aware of the cobblestone as a, as mm. a place. And so when we moved up first, we actually moved to a place just down North King Street purely because we wanted to be as near as possible to the cobblestone. Is that, and, is that true? And that's, yeah, yeah. And, and we've more or less, like, I still live in Dublin. Breen has only recently moved down to Wicklow, but I've more mm. or less moved in a in a circle orbiting the cobblestone. And so did I until recently. Until yeah, very recently. And then Walsh's kind of came later as a kind of a, an offshoot of that because we wanted to have a session that was a little bit less traditional. But the cobblestone is definitely where we found our way really into like before we were playing gigs we were playing I guess broadly speaking folk music but a lot of it could have been like American folk music because it had nice harmonies mm. so we were singing kind of old time songs there was old time kind American of, stuff like it, there was a little bit of a like maybe Republican connect, like vibe if you in Carlo that maybe if you sang ballads you people know in inverted commas think people would think of rebel songs yeah. maybe yeah. or you know and there, yeah there just wasn't a huge amount of singing of traditional songs in carlo there's a, a couple of people who sing traditional songs but it's not a big thing in carlo and it didn't seem like if there was any scene relevant it didn't seem relevant or it didn't no. seem like it was going to work for us and there isn't a whole lot of traditional singing in harmony anyway mm -hmm. so that also just didn't occur to us you know because we were trying to do stuff with harmonies we arrived to Dublin and I think the big game changer was this singing session called The Night Before Larry Got Stretched which happens in the back room of the cobblestone which is specifically the part of the cobblestone that's especially under threat at the moment yeah so we arrived in and we had met one or two of the people at this session before. So we knew a few of the people, but other than that, this was a really new experience to us. We were in this room with a lot of young people, like who... Be about 60 people maybe would be in at Larry most of the time, 50, 60 yeah. people. Yeah. And, and there were like a good number of people our age who seemed like they were cool sound people who we'd want to hang out with yeah some um, of them looked like us some of them looked like punks some of them looked yeah. like they were in ntd it was a pretty bit of a mix yeah. like yeah. and then there was also a lot of older people and it was a really intergenerational gathering mm. and the quality of singing was amazing i remember like being just really shocked and intimidated in a good way kind of almost where i was like wow i've got to like step up my game here i was like hearing these amazing singers and I was like geez that's that's cool I want to be doing that I was hearing like you know people singing with really nice ornamentation or or just singing straight and doing it really well or whatever mm. it was hearing these songs that just it was powerful you could hear a pin drop in the room you know it's yeah. unamplified it's just people sitting around taking turns singing and it's yeah and it's kind of powerful yeah. extremely welcoming community I think I went to that session a couple of times before I was ever brave enough to sing at it. And for many years, even maybe still, it's one of the places where I'm almost most nervous to to sing because you're in a room of people who really care yeah. about songs. They hang on every word and, they'll, and they, they're not going to miss anything, you know. They really yeah. know the songs, but at the same time are so supportive. Mm. So it is just 
it's it's the place where you know that's that's the fertile ground for that kind yeah. of thing to take off you know like the people that we met they ended up being the people who were in like Lancome, Skipper's Alley, Landless, John Francis Flynn, Neve Burry, Alan Woods, like a, a, yeah. all these people who are like, and it's now like a, a scene in inverted commas that yeah. people are referring to, but it's, that was really where we met everybody and made friends with everyone, you know, Lisa yeah. O'Neill. Yeah. Yeah. But you could equally bump into Christy Moore there, just like yeah. in a woolly hat sitting in the corner. It's funny, I was about the cobblestone, you know, the, the quality of the music is inversely proportional to the quality of the toilet. <laughs> <laughs> That's um, probably a rule. In general. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like the opposite to the restaurant rule yeah. where like if the toilet's dirty, the kitchen yeah. will be dirty, don't eat there. You know, if you go in and the toilet's immaculate, you're like, I don't want to listen to the tunes here, guys. Let's go. <laughs> um, but now one thing though, so because... I mean, you, you described that beautifully there, um, arriving on the cobblestone and, you know, almost feeling intimidated. But I imagine that there's a kind of a, a buffer that you create in just being brothers, that you, you know, you're not sitting in the cobblestone necessarily entirely alone. I'm yeah. in the cobblestone more metaphorically now at this point. But, you know, <laughs> and when you're out and about in the world and, you yeah. know, trying to carve a niche for yourself, <laughs> you have, you know, each other. We were definitely referred to as the lads or the brothers, even if it's just one of us on our own a lot. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you do. You become a plural entity. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You lose a bit of your your individuality. And it it is both a, a like a nice thing and a, kind of a frustrating thing sometimes. But like, because, yeah. you know, you, you, people don't necessarily know you. And it's more than just in your mind. There is a special quality of hearing siblings' voices a blend oh yeah yeah and look at the nolans <laughs> <laughs> no it's true yeah no it's it's a classic thing and people yeah. call it blood harmony and stuff yeah yeah and that was kind of an interesting discovery for us when we made it because because there is a bit of an age gap you know there's four and a half years we didn't hang out when we were kids really you know like mm. when we were like or teenagers especially we hung out when we were little kids yeah and then, and then you know it becomes yeah. uncool to be hanging around yeah. with your little younger brother then for a couple of years you want 16 to be 16 or yeah. 12 four years seems massive it's huge yeah, yeah. 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 but yeah. then when Breen was 16 and i was 20 or that thereabouts yeah. then suddenly we realized we had loads in common and yeah. um around that time our sister asked us actually to sing a song at her wedding and there was harmony that was the first time we'd ever sung together and we kind of you know we we were immediately like yeah this is this is all right cool. yeah and and how does the division of labor work um when you're making music together it changes all the time yeah. i mean we just finished making another album it's kind of being mixed right now but um like that this album is one that we definitely wrote together like we we came together a few times we each had songs that we had written that we brought to the table we each had songs that we had found and kind of worked on um, as well so it was it gets divided up kind of differently every time really. yeah every time there was a time when like when we were younger that we went through a phase where like one of us would have been writing more songs but the other one would have been arranging traditional songs more and then there was a, there's also been times when you know one would write a song the other one would end up kind of developing it Mm-hmm. and bring it to the place where it's I think that's one of the cool playable. that's kind of an interesting thing like if for me I find that really fun if if Dermot comes to me with a song um, 
maybe sometimes I'll sing the song back to him immediately um, just so that he can hear the way that I'm hearing him sing it. Because for me, sometimes if I've written a song, it can be hard to feel confident in it just yeah. off the bat, you know. Um, in a way, singing traditional songs helps uh, the fact that we've done that so much. We're used to just singing words that we're not that attached to in the same way where we're not insecure about. So mm. you can have you can come at it with the same approach sometimes where you just you write something and then treat it as if you've found it mm. and then make it better and, you know, share it with somebody else or and work on it like that. It, it can be. Yeah, it can be a, a good. It has been I a think good we've thing. I think it took us like uh, a while. I think we've we have put work into getting better at working together and mm. that like collaborating because it's it's a it's a scale of its own and yeah you know you could draw bits of advice from various different places we've read various books and we've you know i suppose learned tricks from other kinds of projects we've been involved in and you there's little bits of improv tricks that you throw in there and there's yeah. other things that are useful you know it's yeah. hard though it's really hard to like, you know, the most important thing when you're collaborating with someone creatively is that neither of you ever says no or shuts something mm. down. You can't. I love that you've gone to improv tricks and read books about collaboration and all that. Totally. I'm yeah, getting big to. nerds off you, which I like. Yes. <laughs> yes absolutely. absolutely. <laughs> nerds are my favorite people as well. Yeah, it's just people who are like unashamedly interested in things. Yeah. yeah. And um, you know, go deep. Well, in one of my perfect, beautiful segues, this would seem like a good time to hear a song that you wrote together. Yeah, sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. This and is what's a, the song? you want to talk about it? Yeah. Um, it's called Go Away and Come Back Hither. And it had been an idea floating around in the kind of uh, the ether for like a bit of a melody and a few words for a couple of years. And then it took this last two years and the experiences of the last two years and just what that did to us for this to turn into a song to come together and um, it's about uh, something everyone experiences of you know that part of every kind of relationship of you know you have to experience separation and coming back together and sometimes it's almost like a necessary flux in any sort of loving relationship that the song then ends up being kind of shaped around a romantic relationship and there's a little bit of of um folklore in one of the verses um that i i kind of got a, a bit of inspiration from my wife's background because she was telling me about this uh um idea of your, your wife's background your wife is from syria is right? yeah she's yeah. born in damascus she grew up in the states but um she was talking about this idea that they they have in Islam where if you're, you know, if you have a romantic connection with someone or even a really strong friendship or, you know, special type of connection with someone. Soul friend. A soul, soul yeah, yeah, a soul connection with someone that your souls knew each other before birth. And so there's this line in there about meeting before creation. We bring in a bit of that. But the idea is the go away and come back hither, the going away and the coming back together. And... Yeah, that creates some something. I think. Guess in, we've all felt it in the past yeah, couple of years, and yeah. and mm. it uh, it creates a tension and a longing that is 
it can be as strong as the feelings of love or it can strengthen the feelings of love yeah. in a way that we have for people that we miss. Um, and it can also be relevant to people who who go away in a way that maybe they don't come back physically. Mm. And yeah, it kind of, it's a bit of that too. Yeah. Yeah, let's hear it then.
the only one you like Gorgeous. <laughs> Thanks. Um, very talented nerds. That's what you thought. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, uh, Dearman, you just briefly mentioned your, your lovely missus, mm -hmm. and you two are still living deep in the heart of Hipsterville, Stony Batters. Exactly. That right? Yeah, yes. yeah. I've got the beard, you know. Um, You've got the trucker got cap. The, yeah, you know, I, I drink a lot of flat whites, you know, I can't afford to buy my own house. Yeah. <laughs> uh, listen, this idea that flat white is a hipster thing bothers me because oh, when we all were of kids, you know, that's what milky coffee is what we always, yeah, that's what you got. That's mm, what yeah, totally. I also you think, know. yeah, I also think like the idea of hipster is kind of a, like a construct to shame young people or something. And it's it's been used by like by politicians by journalists to to basically like create this imaginary idea in people's minds that young people are the reason that they can't afford yeah, housing exactly, right yes. now which is such I can't believe I spent 200 grand on avocado and toast you know yeah well, and you I'm read such these, an idiot like what, what's what is people's problem with someone who wears a woolly hat like what the <laughs> like a proper nerd hipster yeah, yeah. yeah although in fairness if your flat white is made from oat milk you deserve to never live in the house <laughs> Two I'll admit hands to that one. Yeah, absolutely. It's a tastier flat white. <laughs> um, but now, Brian, you abandoned the epicenter of, of Irish hipsterdom uh, to move to Wicklow. Yeah. With uh, your Mrs. in tow. Yeah, that's right. Yes. Yeah. Just about a year ago. Yeah, kind of a pandemic move. I was as well. about to ask you about that. Was yeah. it sort of pandemic related? Yeah, it was definitely. Yeah, we were kind of just stuck in like a room in Fibsborough and yeah. it was great and we loved who we lived with and where we lived and everything but um, yeah you do feel I was just starting to feel a bit closed in by walls especially during yeah. the two kilometre radius kind yes, of time yeah, yeah. so um, yeah then this house popped up right up the road from uh, my partners from Newtown McKennedy so North Wicklow so yeah it's great I, I like being down there but mm. I don't know I might make it back to Dublin at some point I'm not sure if we'll stay there or not but you know because I have the small town boy thing. And I think if you're from a small town, either you, you want to be, you know, you, that or you absolutely do not. And I am like Dublin one, slap in the middle of it. I don't even want to see a leaf. <laughs> I, I want to just, you know, be surrounded by concrete and dog shit, you know. Yeah, well, um, it's it's just there, it's constant action, isn't there? Yeah. Like there's so much going on in the city all the time. Um, but I also just want to very briefly bring up something else that I sort of struck me when reading about you guys is your kind of um, wariness of the Irish thing. And especially if you're in the kind of trad milieu and everything, which I so identify with um, because, you know, there was a time when if I saw St. Patrick's Day something, I would run screaming in the other direction um, because I felt absolutely, um, you know, excluded from that uh, 
idea of Irishness, which felt so weirdly plastic to me, but also mm. it didn't want me anyway. That's how I used to feel about it, you know? Yeah, that's why we don't like it. Like, yeah. that's what we don't like about it. I mean, there's times when we've benefited from people's maybe fantasies mm-hmm. about Ireland. Yeah. Um, and we can't pretend that we haven't, you know? Yeah. Like, if we go over to America, there's yeah. a lot of Irish Americans who are going to have fantasies about Ireland yeah. um, that they project onto us, yeah. and that's grand. But what we don't like is what you've just identified is when it's an exclusive thing. Yeah. And sometimes it's those same Irish Americans, if it's or, or sometimes it's our own homegrown brand of yeah. mean people who yeah. basically yeah. Uh, think that, who are gatekeepers, who yeah. think that they can tell other people what Irishness is not. Yeah. And I think we've done a lot to change that as a country in lots of ways, in lots of really positive ways in the last number of years. But there's lots of things we still don't necessarily want to be associated with. No. Well, you know, because I'm I'm often accused of being like a gay rights activist. But I always say that was never the way I saw it. And my project, if I had one, used to always be about expanding the definition of Irishness. Mm. Oh, yeah. To make it a concept that was more elastic. Mm. Um, you know, to be able to stretch comfortably around someone like me, because yeah. uh, when I was younger, I felt absolutely excluded from the concept of Irishness, you know, because I didn't tick all the right boxes. I think that's like one of the most beautiful things about queerness in general, actually, is like that you, there it can apply to so much more than sexuality. Yeah. And it doesn't have to be about gay rights or anything. It can actually just be about like colour and yeah. like... Uh, kind of performativeness or just as you said like just expanding the the definitions and, yeah. and throwing the doors open to all kinds of things that you know sometimes shock value is really great too because yeah. you can totally shock people into a situation where they're like what the world can be like this and then you know they might be like outraged for a second and then they're like oh okay and, and people have the most fun of their lives when they're also slightly outraged yeah, yeah I mean, it's a great state you know there's a value to a little bit of discomfort is, yeah. at times if it's no. done right and that's that's a skill that like i think you've probably developed throughout your career mm. and it's it's tricky it's not something that like we necessarily try to incorporate in what we're doing not in our music yeah. maybe sometimes in our stage banter a little bit yeah. but like you know challenge a few things here and there gently but i really admire that yeah. when people do that i really admire it as a as a thing as a, as a type of work to do yeah yeah well speaking of to do um what's next um <laughs> yeah for well. the most adorable nerds in the, in the traditional <laughs> music industry <laughs> nobody else has really ever honed in no. as much on the nerd thing and it's so <laughs> yeah, spot like on yeah. no it's really spot on actually um, um well i'm gonna be well we're finishing mixing an album I, I'm going to start writing my science fiction novel. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I'm going to be categorizing my butterfly collection. Yeah, and we're then, finishing uh, an album and we're playing a gig in the National Concert Hall on the 28th. It's two. Well, it's on the 28th of November, so it's the end of the month. Yeah. Yes. I think this well, is going to there probably well, there probably very few tickets left for that. Um, I know how popular you nerds are. I will look forward to it. Um, thank you so much for, for being here Thanks today. For Thanks us for having us in. Thoroughly enjoyed having the chats, and uh, good luck with everything. Wow! Thanks a million. Cool. That was great. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. 
haven't done a lot of like this kind of, I haven't done any of this kind of thing at no, all. Actually, I was laughing because, um, yes, um, Helen and John here, you know, do all that background research, but and then I do actually look at it and read it. And so I'm watching this um, fairly painful interview with you guys that's done in French with these, <laughs> oh oh my my God. With these oh translators. Oh my God. And then later, something else I'm reading, and, you're, and, and you're, you describe well, your worst ever gig, and you start to, and I'm like, <laughs> that is that is <laughs> <weird."> <laughs> <laughs>